0: Hello, hello. Feels good to be back. Another week done, another week closer to wherever it is we're all hoping to get to. Hope you're keeping well. Fifth episode, here we go. Breezing through them all. Um, Summer's more or less over. School and college coming back like a bull with horns, but that's okay. New year, new you. Speaking of new, um, I got a first ever tattoo today. Nice experience overall, must say. Um, I'm pretty happy with it. It has nothing to do with the episode. I'm just filling you in on my day. Um, I mean, don't you want to know how I'm doing? But thanks for stopping in. Uh, got a nice episode here. We've another movie suggestion from one of a growing number of United States listeners. Thanks as always for the messages of support. Uh again, look, sorry if my voice gets a little raspy and it's very, very hoarse today. I've just been socializing and vocalizing a lot more recently now that, you know, life is getting back to normal here in Ireland. But um, I'll get into that later on. Um, Let's stop beating about the bush and let's just get into this. All right. This is one of my top five favorite movies of all time. The Devil's Advocate. So this movie, uh, it was made in 1997, starring a very angry, gravelly Al Pacino and a very baby-faced Keanu Reeves. Um, This is before he found the fame and fortune, well, the well-deserved fame and fortune of the Matrix film. And we also have a rare instance of Charlize Theron. You might remember her if you saw the trashy Final, not Final Fantasy, what was it? Fast and Furious, the eighth one. She was in that, but in this movie she gives, in my opinion, an Academy Award-worthy performance. Um, This movie, It's all about temptation, and this is what the episode is gonna center around. Um, The movie makes more of a biblical stance, um, a a biblical, uh, dramatic interpretation on the idea of temptation, whereby it maintains that giving into one's temptation brings you one step closer to the devil and towards damnation. Um, It's a dramatic take. Uh, Here's a quick, short breakdown. So we have Kanye West, (laughs) uh, Keanu Reeves, not Kanye West, Keanu Reeves. Keanu Reeves, goddammit, plays a successful lawyer in rural America who defends uh, a pretty much guilty child molester and gets him acquitted simply because he doesn't want to end his winning streak. He feels guilty about it at first, but then, look, the career in the end prevails. Um, He gets approached ...by a shady company owned by Al Pacino... ...who pays him Boku bucks to represent his company... ...which is involved in a lot of international badness, shall we say. It's never fully revealed what this... ...what this giant shady company does. If it was, I didn't pick up on it. But anyways, the big reveal comes pretty quickly... ...as it's more and more heavily implied that... ...Al Pacino's character is actually Satan, who pushes Keanu Reeves further and further down this bleak path to self-destruction via temptation. So that's the gist of it, right? The film, look, I love it, but it has a lot of questionable scenes and moments, and it doesn't always flow perfectly, but it's truly carried by the amazing performance of the three central actors, Al Pacino in particular, phenomenal job. Um. But the term, Devil's Advocate, stems from a real job within the Catholic Catholic Church way back in the day. They called it the Advocatus Diaboli. Um, And this job was for people who were almost like ace lawyers or private investigators. So his job, the Devil's Advocate back in the day, um, and I say his job because women weren't allowed and still aren't allowed to hold positions in the church. Um, His job was to find evidence of foul play or false miracles that a proposed saint may have done. So for example, if I was to be canonized tomorrow, the devil's advocate, whether he agreed or not that I should be canonized, made into a saint, he had to come up with a counter argument or find evidence uh, that would persuade everyone that I wasn't really a saint. Sometimes it worked, sometimes it didn't, but many tactics used by the devil's advocates were to use social channels, sort of sort of like word-of-mouth evidence of associates of the saint or past, uh, past anecdotal evidence that may reveal aspects of the saint's mentality that wouldn't be desirable in a saint, and a useful one was their self-discipline and avoidance of giving into temptation right saints aren't supposed to be tempted into any one of the old school seven deadly sins you know like lust gluttony uh laziness violence um they must be completely holy otherwise the church would have had a hard time in building an image of what catholics and christians really should strive to be to become closer to god Now, I'm not all that religious, and these belief systems are more reflective of an unjust, violent ruling body that, you know, burned people at the stake because they were different, but also preached peace and harmony at the same time. They preached abstinence from alcohol and large quantities of food, while also being well-fed, well-pampered individuals. And let's not forget um, preaching humility, both spiritual and financial while also being in control of entire countries and holding billions, billions worth of wealth. Um, It raises the question though, the folks who preach the loudest appear to be as equally human as the rest of us. And according to most religions, it's not enough to just stay human. Humans are these lustful, gluttonous, violent creatures, characteristics that have become associated to the classic image of the devil but when we reject the temptation to become these things we reject the devil and become closer to God right it's not a case of uh, you eat less you you know you don't commit adultery you don't hit anybody or commit violence that makes you more holy no it's the action of moving away from the devil that is holy if that makes sense But is anyone truly free of temptation? Um, Sigmund Freud, and I was actually a guest on another podcast, the Actually Do You Know What podcast, and that episode, I talked a lot about Freud, and the episode's going to be released this Wednesday. Well, it'll be released. (laughs) I don't know what time you're listening to this. Um, Sigmund Freud, arguably the worst psychologist to ever exist, believed that humans were guided entirely by unobservable, immeasurable aspects of their unconscious mind. He also believed that sex was the guiding motivator for all behavior. Sex is in the air, (laughs) sex is on the brain, basically. Um, So he never really used the word temptation, but instead used the term seduction in a few different contexts. Not all the context really made sense, uh, but I won't get into that. He believed that the human mind was split into three parts, which he called the id, the ego, and the superego. So the id is a part of your unconscious um, that wants gratification. It desires lots and lots of things, lovely food, sex, money, whatever. And it's responsible for these... Basic human urges that might range from something like something normal, like, oh, let's eat this giant chocolate cake. It can it can be something as simple as that to something more outrageous, like, oh, let's run around the streets naked. Um, the superego is the part of you, that tiny little voice in your mind that says, uh-uh, don't do that. That's wrong. This part of us comes from society and parenting, and what we learn. Uh, through others as right and wrong as we go on in life. The superego is that little part of us, that moral streak that f- encourages us not to give in to the ego. Sorry, the, the superego. The ego then acts as a seesaw, um, trying to find a compromise between the super righteous superego and the crazy caveman id. So for example, the ego would say something like, no, we can't run around the streets naked because that's wrong, but what we can do is when we get home and have the blinds drawn, then we'll walk around naked. Um, Freud himself interviewed and treated many, many people throughout his career. Even though he wasn't a fantastic psychologist, he was an all right listener. And he had a lot of patients who had a variety of of mental illnesses that weren't really understood at all back then. This is way back in the early 1900s. Freud interviewed and treated many people throughout his career. Um, And he believed that all mental illnesses come from a faulty ego. So the part of your mind that couldn't control the id and its uh, shameful, barbaric urges He believed that this imbalance in the seesaw was caused by trauma, which is kind of true for a lot of mental illnesses, but not all, so we'll give him partial credit. And that this imbalance could lead to a lot of self-destructive behaviours like panic, suicidal thoughts, addiction, obsession, hallucinations even. So what does this have to do with temptation? Well, Freud had this whole theory that an inability to regulate one's urges and emotions and to find compromise was essentially being a victim to temptation. And this was a gateway to a lot of suffering. So seeing as there are more or less constant uh, traumatic experiences just around the corner, because this world is pretty messed up sometimes, isn't it reasonable that most people's uh, seesaws would be slightly off-kelter, if not completely off their hinges. And wouldn't everyone behave in strange manners if it was the case where traumatic experiences broke the superego, let's say, or broke the ego? Um, And maybe to a certain degree, but from your own life experience, and I'm talking to you right now, from your own life experiences, most people are pretty stable most of the time. If they weren't, the world would be a very scary different place uh, even more so than it already is but that's another story <clears throat> so um this idea of what temptation actually is in psychology has shifted away over the years from an emotional perspective to more of a cognitive one so it's less of a feeling and more of a brain issue Not i won't say issue brain uh is associated more with your your Cognitive capabilities. So, the best way to see if you're able to resist temptation or not on a reasonably small scale that you can try yourself at home go get a bag of sweets or marshmallows or biscuits or whatever. Take one out and leave it on the table in front of you. Ask a friend or family member or anybody around to take the bag away and to come back in 30 minutes. So, the game is if the marshmallow or the sweet or the biscuit that you've left for yourself, if that's uneaten by the time the other person comes back, you're gonna be rewarded with the whole bag. If it's gone, you get nothing. So if you eat the sweet, you get no more treats. (laughs) Now, you know in your mind, right, that if you wait 30 minutes, that's not a long time. If you wait 30 short minutes, you're gonna have far more goodies than if you eat one goodie straight away. This is what's known as temporal discounting. And it's the ability to recognize that a bag of sweets in a half an hour is more valuable than one sweet right now. Children who are very, very young can't actually do this. They're gonna eat the sweet most of the time. Whereas adults who um, care more, I guess, about the experiment and they like sweets, they'll be able to reason and hold out for the half an hour and they're going to get a bag and they're going to be super, super stoked to get that bag. But half an hour isn't actually that long. What if it was two hours or six hours or 24 hours? What if it was a week or a year or 10 years? Um, Most people have this weird, illogical idea that the longer you have to wait for something the less value it has even among adults i guess um we see that temporal discounting might be a limited feature in most of us present well present company included i have to say i you know i'm (laughs) i i have a, a crippling sweet tooth i'll say um i can't say i perform any better than the children to be honest but that's just me i like to eat it's not a crime um, this, uh, ability uh, to rationalize value, um, can lead to well, this inability. I'll say this inability to rationalize value can lead to some really, really nasty outcomes. For example, um, I know a few shopaholics and I'm not going to name names, but shopaholics might like the look of that new designer handbag or a flashy sports car and they may not be able to get past the short-term gratification it's going to bring compared to the long-term financial repercussions of that choice. How much is a designer bag? I don't buy them. I don't know. How much is a designer bag? We say, For the sake of argument, let's say it's a very expensive bag. Let's say it's two and a half grand. Now, if you're young and let's say you're just starting off in your career, two and a half grand is a lot of money to go spending on a bag. But shopaholics or really anybody who has difficulty get pa- getting past this idea that um, the short-term benefits are minuscule compared to the long-term consequences of this action. You might not be able to eat anything apart from noodles for the next couple of weeks, right? Uh, or um, another example, right? Uh, eating a leftover 2,000 calorie chocolate cake for dinner because going to the trouble of preparing something healthier might somewhat lower the value of the dinner in someone's eyes, right? Look, the list goes on. <clears throat> and while most of us, we do learn this idea of temporal discounting, there appears to be somewhat of a limit um, to how how natural um, this trait is in humans. Um, it, it, For the most part, it's a logical system of thought that appears to take conscious effort to learn. Um, You could call it conditioning, I guess. That would be a better way to call it. And that implies that saying no to temptation, which is being painted today as a logical error rather than a spiritual hole or a deep feeling, um, saying no to temptation can be learned. And researchers have seen that the ability to avoid temptation or having the self-control and understanding of temporal discounting uh, it can lead to a lot of positive life outcomes in the future, such as being more organized with your time, uh, being able to prioritize and allocate resources to a task, um, being more successful in education, having more uh, fulfilling careers and relationships. And and um, just coming back to the, the the marshmallow test that I was talking about, that's a real study um, that they did on children using sweets and marshmallows. Um It was done in the 1970s and you can look it up it's called marshmallow test 1970 you just pop that into Google and you'll find it Um, these kids who successfully ignored the marshmallow and waited for the person to come back and give them more marshmallows they actually performed better in their SATs years down the line than the kids who ate the marshmallow in fact Uh, a very simplistic view of decision-making in humans, a very basic one um, is that, and and there's tons of research spanning the past few decades on this, go check it out, um, that we have two different types of self-regulation in people. So when it comes to decision-making, self-regulation is very important, and there's two different types of self-regulation in people. Planful, careful, and rational versus impulsive and irrational. And this idea has been, for the most part, supported um, by neuroscience. So examining the parts of the brain involved in long-term planning, um, in memory, problem-solving, emotion regulation, these studies into the parts of the brain involved in these things have revealed um, that, well, I suppose, that there are parts of the brain involved in rationalizing needs Uh, versus wants and short-term versus long-term benefits and the most influential neuroscience case in modern centuries was on a fella named Phineas Gage. Now (laughs) if you study psychology in college I'm so sorry to bring up his name because it seems to me that lecturers are simply obsessed with this weird man but for those for those of you who who don't know him uh, Phineas Gage was a railroad engineer from the States around the year of 1850, thereabouts, so pretty old. And he received what's known as a prefrontal lobotomy, um, or in English, the front part of his brain, the very, very front part, roughly where your forehead is, that was severely damaged after a metal rod blew up through his jaw and up into his head. Um, it's amazing he survived because the chances of walking that off are slim to none but he did walk it off and something very strange happened to his personality so before the accident he was calm polite <clears throat> sorry my voice is killing me now he was um, very self-controlled very self-regulated very well liked and adored by his friends and, f- and his family and he probably would have been seen as being an ordinary joe maybe even introverted but after the explosion that took a chunk out of his brain, he completely changed. He became very short-tempered. He had these explosive emotional outbursts. He got into fights. Um, he had no patience for anything or, every, or, or anyone. He swore all the time. Uh, he couldn't commit to long-term plans. Um, he couldn't stop himself from doing the first thing that came across his mind, basically. And most of us, I think, would like to tell the world and everyone in it what we think of them, you know, you know, you screw you. (laughs) We just uh, we'd love to just, I guess, not show up for work and have no responsibilities or commitments to just wake up and do whatever the heck you wanted. But we don't do these things because we can rationalize and we can see the consequence of doing these things around the corner. Right. We can see that actions have consequences. Uh, we have a certain amount of freedom and we can choose how much of this freedom we want to exercise, but we must accept the consequences. We don't give in to the temptation to do these things. Um, And it's so ingrained in us not to uh, do crazy things that maybe we would want to, um, that we couldn't even dream of doing or behaving like this on a daily basis because it's so ingrained in us through parenting and just through being a part of society. Phineas Gage, right, he lost the ability to do any of those things that we can do, and he was the perfect case study because his injury was entirely located in the front portion of his brain, the prefrontal cortex so if if you If you're a completely normal person and you get a traumatic head injury located at one specific place, the behavior that is going to emerge after that will be pretty much explained what that region that you've gotten the injury, what like the region of the brain where the injury took place, it'll explain what that region does. And the region that blew up his prefrontal cortex, that's the region where most neurologists believe is the center for regulating emotion. Um, we can see that people who have damaged this part of their brain, either through external forces like physical injury, Uh, maybe a car crash falling from a height, pianos falling from the sky, or from internal issues like a stroke. People with damage to this region mimic certain behaviours similar to compulsive gamblers. Um, There was a really cool test done with patients with prefrontal cortex damage, and basically what they did was they asked them to choose from a deck of cards uh, some cards were labeled as monetary rewards, maybe a few euros so if you pick those cards, you get a, a few bob and some were pretty big payouts but other cards were catastrophic so if you pick certain cards you 're going to have a huge chunk of money taken back from you and the deck is split i 'm pretty sure the deck was split evenly with good cards and bad cards so if you take all of the cards it 's you 're just going to go bankrupt. And most people can rationalize this, understand the game, they'd understand um, the risk versus reward. Uh, They'll know it's a losing game technically. And what they'll do is they'll play a few cards and then stop when they've made a profit. Heavy gamblers do this all the time, right? Not heavy gamblers, healthy, healthy gamblers. Um, They do this all the time. And it makes casinos very mad because they don't want rational gamblers who make a profit and then leave. They want irresponsible gamblers who'll stay there all night and gamble their life savings away and then come back for more the next day. Um, If a casino, uh, I was just thinking this now, if a casino could open next to a lab treating people with prefrontal cortex damage, I think they'd be very, very happy. But people with this brain damage simply couldn't understand that picking most of the cards leads to an inevitable loss and they kept gambling and gambling and gambling until they lost everything, right? Um, And casinos, and gambling dens really do try to break your logical side down i've never been to a casino because i'm not a fan of gambling money that i can't afford to to gamble on anyways with games with low profitability but think about it the bright flashing lights to attract your focus to the machines or to the tables um they might sell cheaper drinks there or even free drinks to appease that old-fashioned gluttony streak in all of us um some right they won't they won't admit to this but some casinos let in hookers to encourage you to gamble more and more and more and more and there's that lust right and according to freud this seduction um, your ids are going mad to try everything in sight so many urges are kicking off that it's hard to take a step back and say well hang on a minute what are the long-term consequences of this and um, recent enough studies have highlighted another type of logical error that takes place that makes people overwhelmed with temptation to play on even when you're losing. And that's called, and I love this um, idea, it's called the gambler's fallacy. It's the idea that the the more you lose, the more likely you are to win the next round. You know what I mean? Um, that, of course, isn't true for a single game in a casino. No casino works like that. But um, games of probability have... An outcome that's mutually exclusive from the last meaning that just because a roulette ball has landed on all of the numbers except black 35 it doesn't mean that black 35 is the next number that's going to be hit it's always a set number of odds for each spin of the wheel I think it's 38 to 1 so if you play the game 38 times the 39th time, the odds are still going to be 38 to 1. And that doesn't ever change because the same numbers remain. But it's amazing how many people can't rationalize that, right? Not not only the people who can't rationalize it, but the people who can rationalize this, but forget this rule when they go gambling. It's insane. Um, Panic, right? Panic often takes place, or at least Large amounts of tension and anxiety takes place when you lose. When a player loses money, that's money that they may not get back and that causes tension and anxiety. Um, If you're a working adult, you probably have to pay a mortgage or you have to pay rent. Uh, You've got kids to feed and that's money that you've just gambled away. That's not going to those things that are very important to you. So you might feel persuaded to play more, especially when you're anxious, because let's face it, when you're, when you're nervous, you're not thinking at your best. Um, whether it's public speaking and you freeze up during questions or you stutter when you're, you're asking somebody out on a date or whatever, you get clumsy. And chronic gamblers lose. They lose money at the end of the day because of the law of numbers and because the circumstances of gambling at a venue reduce your capacity in many ways to think clearly. It reduces your ability to rationalize and ultimately overcome the temptation to play. Um, They say everything in moderation. Well, unfortunately, some things only come in moderate amounts. A key thing is willpower. Lots of studies show that willpower is like a muscle that can be strengthened over time, but ultimately it has its limits before these negative outcomes start to become observed. Um, Characters like superheroes, let's say Batman, the guy with an indestructible will, people like that just cannot exist. Um, There has been a reasonable amount of evidence to prove that. A study using hungry participants where cookies and radishes were placed in a room and one group could either eat the cookies or the radishes, but the other group only had the option of the radishes... They had to eat their fill and then go and figure out this really annoying frustrating task and what they found was that the people who only had the radishes gave up on the task way quicker than the people who got the cookie and no doubt sweetened their sweet tooth <clears throat> now that doesn't mean that cookies make you work harder or work smarter uh, it's just that the amount of willpower being used refrain from eating the cookies from the you know the other participants had to stop themselves from going and eating these lovely cookies that willpower took a significant toll on the remaining willpower left and so the participants who ate the radishes had no more willpower left for the next annoying task so they couldn't persist with it and you see this a lot with people who try going on diets or quitting alcohol or coffee or smoking moodiness and impatience comes with the territory of using a lot of willpower so that's why it's important to remember that everything comes in moderation and that should be the case for lifestyle changes this idea of going cold turkey that might work for some but it's going to leave you with a decreased willpower that will affect other parts of your life so that's why And this is my own little thing here. I don't know if this is psychologically sound, what I'm about to say. So don't sue me. Maybe a little light weaning off. Not cold turkey, but just gradually reducing the intake of whatever it is you're trying to to leave behind. Maybe that wouldn't go amiss. Oh yeah, and um, the last thing I wanted to say is, please protect your prefrontal cortices or cortexes. (laughs) Because you don't want to end up like Phineas Gage. And you don't want to enjoy your life as a carefree psycho, as he did. (laughs) But anyway, everybody, uh, I'm going to leave it there. My voice is really, it's on the verge of, like, leaving and never coming back. Thanks for popping by. And quick reminder that if you have any questions or something else to add to anything I've discussed in this episode or other episodes, feel free to DM me at the Movie Millennium Podcast on Instagram or my own personal Instagram, Ilya Marchev. And the same goes if you have a movie suggestion. send it in. Um, next week, I want to leave it a surprise simply because i I want to take a break from suggestions um, and I don't think that's a good idea because there are so many suggestions that are already stacking up and you've been making them quite hard. But after that next ep- next episode is just gonna be my own choice. and then after that, we're gonna go back to the suggestions. Um, and I'll try in vain to catch up with the movies that are already so far backed up. So if there's anything you want me to eventually get to, maybe in a couple of years time, please let me know. Anyways, I'm going to go drink a lot of alcohol, smoke a lot of cigarettes, have as much sex as I can and gamble my college money away at the casino. So uh, thanks for that. Anyway, bye for now.